0: This is Space Time series 21 episode 59 for broadcast on the 27th of July 2018. Coming up on Space Time, discrepancies continue to infect the standard model of cosmology, the sun's outer corona seen in a new light providing new information, and a new way to track space junk. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers trying to work out how fast the universe is expanding still can't agree on a key figure in the standard model of cosmology. And despite hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of thousands of hours of research, the difference between their figures is actually getting bigger rather than smaller. The new findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal show that the universe's present rate of expansion is 73.5 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And contrary to what you may have remembered from Star Wars, a parsec is not a measure of time, but one of distance, equivalent to 3.26 light-years. What all this means is that for every 3.26 million light-years further away a galaxy is from us, it appears to be moving away from us at 73.5 kilometres per second faster. The figures, based on detailed measurements of the distances to stars in the local universe using NASA's Hubble Space Telescope and the European Space Agency's Gaia Space Observatory. The problem is, the results conflict with data from another European Space Agency space observatory, the Planck satellite. Its data indicates the universe should be expanding today at only 67.4 km per second per megaparsec, with an uncertainty of less than 1%. The Planck data is based on detailed observations of the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, or CMB, the time 360,000 years after the Big Bang, when temperatures had cooled down enough for the first atoms to form and photons to escape from the primordial superheated quark gluon plasma. The universe's rate of expansion out from the Big Bang 13.82 billion years ago is known as the Hubble Constant, It's named after the astronomer Edwin Hubble, who nearly a century ago discovered that the universe was uniformly expanding in all directions, a finding that gave birth to modern cosmology. Galaxies appear to be receding from Earth proportional to their distances, meaning that the further away they are, the faster they appear to be moving away. This is a consequence of expanding space, and not a value of true space velocity. Because the Hubble constant is needed to estimate the true age of the universe, the long-sought-after answer, the rate of the universe's expansion, is one of the most important numbers in cosmology. By measuring the value of the Hubble constant over time, astronomers can construct a picture of our cosmic evolution, infer the makeup of the universe, and even uncover clues about its ultimate fate. Scientists can't explain the mismatch between the measurements for the expansion rate of the nearby universe, as seen by Hubble and Gaia, And those of the distant primeval universe, before stars and galaxies existed, as seen by Planck. The thing is, as these measurements become more and more precise, instead of the differences getting smaller, the chasm between them has continued to widen, and it's now about four times the size of their combined uncertainty. The two major methods for measuring this number is giving incompatible results. One method is direct, building a cosmic distance ladder for measurements of stars in our local universe. Back in 2005, members of the supernova H0 for the Equation of State, or SHUES, team set out to measure the universe's expansion rate with unprecedented accuracy. Over the following years, by further refining their techniques, the team managed to shave down the rate measurement's uncertainty to unprecedented levels. Now, with the power of Hubble and Gaia combined, they've reduced that rate of uncertainty to just 2.2%. Over the years, the Schuss team have refined the Hubble constant's value by streamlining and strengthening the cosmic distance ladder, used to measure precise distances to both nearby and far-off galaxies. They then compared those distances with the expansion of space measured by the stretching of light from nearby galaxies. Using the apparent outward velocity at each distance, they were then able to calculate the Hubble constant. So, how do they do it? Well, to gauge distances to nearby galaxies, they used a special kind of star as a cosmic yardstick or milepost marker. These stars, known as Cepheid variables, pulsate, brightening and dimming at rates which correspond to their intrinsic brightness. So, by comparing their intrinsic brightness with their apparent brightness as seen from Earth, astronomers can use what's known as the inverse square law to calculate their distances. It's a bit like seeing a row of streetlights down a road. The ones nearer will appear brighter than those further away, even though they actually all have the same intrinsic brightness. Gaia further refined this cosmic yardstick by geometrically measuring the distance to 50 Cepheid variables within the Milky Way galaxy. These measurements were then combined with precise measurements of their brightness from Hubble. This allowed astronomers to more accurately calibrate the Cepheids and then use those seen outside the Milky Way as cosmic milepost markers. When you use Cepheid variables, you need both distance and brightness. Hubble provided the information on brightness and Gaia provided the parallax information needed to accurately determine the distance. Parallax is the apparent change in an object's position compared to background objects due to a shift in the observer's point of view. You can achieve the same effect yourself by holding your thumb out at arm's length in front of your face, and then by looking at it firstly with one eye closed and then the other. As you change eyes, the background behind your thumb also shifts and by measuring the change using simple trigonometry, you can determine the distance. Ancient Greeks first used this technique to measure the distance from the Earth to the Moon. The other method, that employed using Planck, looks at the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, or CMB, to measure the trajectory of the universe shortly after the Big Bang, and then uses physics to describe the universe and extrapolate to the present expansion rate. The entire sky is imprinted with the signature of the Big Bang, encoded as cosmic microwave background radiation, now cooled to just 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. Planck measured the size of ripples in the cosmic microwave background, produced by slight irregularities which appear as minute temperature variations caused by differences in density at the moment the CMB occurred. The fine details in these ripples encode for how much dark matter and normal matter there is, the trajectory of the universe at the time, and other cosmological parameters. These measurements allow scientists to predict how the early universe should have evolved into the expansion rate we can measure today. Together, the two measurements should provide an end-to-end test of science's basic understanding of the so-called standard model of cosmology, the history of the universe. However, with the Hubble-Guy measurement showing the Hubble constant to be 73.5 km per second per megaparsec, and the Planck CMB measurements showing it to be 67.4 km per second per megaparsec, the pieces simply don't fit. And at this point, it's clearly not simply a gross error in one measurement or the other. This so-called tension implies that there could be new physics underlying the foundations of the universe. Possibilities include the interaction strength of dark matter, dark energy being even more exotic than previously thought, or an unknown new particle in the tapestry of space. All cosmological models are based upon Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. To reconcile the general relativistic equations with a wider range of observations including the cosmic microwave background, the standard model of cosmology also includes actions of two unknown components. Firstly, there's the attractive matter component known as cold dark matter, which unlike ordinary matter doesn't interact with light. Secondly, there's a repulsive form of energy known as dark energy, which is causing the expansion rate of the universe to accelerate. Both have been found to be essential components to explain the cosmos in addition to the ordinary matter within it. But as yet, scientists don't know what these exotic components really are. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Scientists have discovered never before detected fine-grained structures in the Sun's outer atmosphere, or corona. The outer part of the Sun's corona is the source of the solar wind, the stream of charged particles that flows outwards from the Sun in all directions. Previous images have shown the outer corona to be smooth in structure. However, the magnetic fields embedded within the solar wind, measured near Earth, are intertwined and complex. No hint of that smooth coronal structure scientists thought was there. The new findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, will help explain why the solar wind is turbulent and gusty. The findings are based on new high-resolution observations of the corona using the Core 2 camera aboard NASA's Stereo A, or Solar and Terrestrial Relations Observatory spacecraft. The authors developed a way of identifying and then separating out the noise, boosting the signal-to-noise ratio and revealing the outer corona in far greater detail. The study's lead author, Craig DeForest, from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, says because they couldn't tinker with the spacecraft itself, they instead looked at the software, developing new filtering algorithms to squeeze out the highest quality observations possible by improving the data's signal-to-noise ratio. DeForest and colleagues also extended exposure durations of Stereo A's chronograph images of the sun's atmosphere, produced by a special telescope that blocks out light from the bright solar disk. The coronagraph is sensitive enough to image the corona in great detail. However, prior to the new software, its measurements were polluted by noise from both the space environment and from the instrument itself. The new changes have provided higher resolution observations of the corona, allowing the authors to determine that things called coronal streamers are far more structured than previously thought. Coronal streamers are magnetic loops that can erupt into coronal mass ejections, powerful eruptions on the sun sending stellar material deep into space which can threaten the safety of astronauts, damage or destroy spacecraft, affect communications and navigation systems, and black out terrestrial power grids. The new observations showed that there was no such thing as a single streamer. Instead, the streamers themselves are composed of a myriad of fine strands that together average to produce a brighter feature. Then there's the theoretical Alphan surface, a hypothesized surface or sheet-like layer where the gradually accelerating solar wind reaches a critical speed. But that wasn't what the Forrester colleagues observed. Instead, they found that there wasn't a single clear alfin boundary, but rather a wide no-man's land or alfin zone, where the solar wind gradually disconnects from the sun. And the new closer look at the coronal structures also raised some new questions. Techniques used to estimate the speed of the solar wind have revealed that the wind suddenly changes its character at a distance of around 10 solar radii. That's well within the conventional boundary of the corona itself. DeForest says it all suggests that there's some interesting physics happening there which isn't yet fully understood. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. (music) Astronomers are planning to use FM radio station signals to track space junk. The technique relies on the simple fact that FM radio stations broadcast signals that are bouncing all over the place, including not just the ground, where they're picked up by your FM radio, but also up in space, where they bounce off space junk. Astronomers plan to use the super-sensitive Murchison Wide Field Array Radio Telescope in outback Western Australia to monitor FM radio signals bouncing off space junk, allowing them to track the objects space junk includes old satellites, spent rocket stages, as well as fragments from their disintegration, erosion and at least five known satellite collisions. The U.S. Air Force Strategic Space Command is currently tracking over 17,900 artificial objects in orbit above the Earth, with less than 1,500 of them being operational satellites. However, those 17,900 objects only include items large enough to be tracked. Estimates suggest there are well over 170 million pieces of space debris smaller than a centimetre now orbiting the Earth. Add to that a further 670,000 bits of debris between, say, 1 centimetre and 10 centimetres wide, and around 29,000 bits of larger debris, but still too small to be detected. So as you can imagine, with all that junk up there, collisions with space debris have become a real hazard to spacecraft, causing damage akin to sandblasting, especially to delicate surfaces like solar panels and optics on telescopes or star trackers that can't be covered with ballistic whipple shields, which don't always work anyway. Scientists say that below altitudes of, say, 2,000 kilometres, space debris is actually denser than meteoroids. Most are dust from solid rocket motors, surface erosion debris like paint flakes and frozen coolant from nuclear-powered satellites. The thing is, these objects are speeding bullets, orbiting the planet at almost 28,000 kilometres an hour. Now astronomers with the Curtin University node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research have teamed up with Adelaide company Silentium Defence to develop a passive radar system for the surveillance of objects in space. Selentium Defence specialise in passive radar technologies for both defence and civilian applications. The techniques considered passive because the radio waves are being generated by FM radio stations located around Australia and not by specific radar transmitters. One of the scientists involved in the project is Professor Stephen Tingay from Curtin University. He says the reflected signals being received by the Murchison-Whitefield Array will be used to track space junk both day and night and when it's cloudy, providing 24-7 surveillance in a way that other systems based on optical telescopes simply can't.
1: So what we're doing is utilizing the Murchison Widefield Array as an element of a, of a passive radar system. We're utilizing everyday, ordinary FM broadcasts that occur all around the world. A lot of the radio waves from the broadcast make their way to our FM radios, but a lot of that energy is broadcast out into space. And some of those radio waves that make their way into space bounce off space junk, and it's those reflected signals that we can pick up with the super sensitive MWA and track the motion of those objects in orbit. So you get to triangulate where they are as well. Yes, uh, we can pinpoint where they are on the sky and how they're moving across the sky, but via a clever technique, we can also measure the range to the object, so the distance, and the Doppler which is effectively the the speed, the line of sight speed that the object has. So with all, all of that information and tracking an object over a significant arc of the sky, we can then potentially reconstruct the orbits very, very accurately.
0: What size objects can you track? I mean, tracking something big, fair enough. What about small things? How small can you go? Do you know yet?
1: Yeah, so this is the exact point of this particular project. I got started on this back in 2013 and made some proof-of-concept observations of very large objects, but also made a theoretical prediction about how small we should be able to go. The result of that calculation was, of order, 50-centimetre-sized objects at a distance of a 1,000 kilometres. There's some reasoning that we could go significantly smaller. So the, the point of this project is to just see how far we can go and also how well we can uh, validate those theoretical predictions that's a really important first step if we want to ultimately create some form of operational capability out of such a technique
0: there are over i think about 170 million bits of space junk of various size space debris we'll say some of it's mm-hmm. really some of it's really tiny others are pretty big there entire rocket stages and and stuff like that all of it poses yep.
1: a threat and not just the small stuff. You're you're exactly right. So back in two thousand and nine, uh, if memory serves me correct, there was a, a pretty famous collision between a defunct Russian satellite and an active iridium satellite so they're big objects meters in size and even objects of of that size can have unpredictable orbits and the sort of margin of error says that this type of collision is possible and with space being ever more congested the chances of those collisions is increasing all the time when you do have a collision like that you immediately produce a whole new debris cloud on a set of completely new orbits so one of the things that we're really interested in is having a capability that can react really quickly to break up events really quickly characterize
0: the debris cloud that's produced and very quickly assess those new threats. There was a lot about the movie Gravity that I didn't like because it wasn't scientifically very accurate, but there were some things which were accurate, such as the debris clouds being created following collisions.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, I, I liked Gravity. The most accurate and, and pretty striking to me, pretty visually striking mm. aspect were, was those breakup events, and, and they were pretty accurate. And I, I thought, in fact, gave a, illustrated the threat
0: pretty nicely, actually. This will help track space debris. Of course, the other side of the coin is actually trying to get rid of it, stuff that's up there already.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, For us, Passive Radar gives us a mechanism to understand what's up there, how it's moving, how breakup events can be characterized. So that's obviously remote sensing. As you say, the, the, the other big part of the equation is what do you do with that information and how can you mitigate those risks? So for some assets, uh, it's possible to manoeuvre. And once a threat is assessed, you can attempt to move the asset out of the line of the threat. You can take some actions in you know, potentially rotating a satellite so that it's less vulnerable. But beyond that, yes, there's not a lot you can do. And I guess a lot of effort and money is now being put into missions and techniques to actually clean up space. So obviously knowledge of where the junk is and how
0: it's moving is also critical in that effort. That's Professor Stephen Tingay from Curtin University. This is Space Time, I'm Stuart Gary. A third operator is about to begin carrying cargo for NASA to the International Space Station. Sierra Nevada, which has been developing the Dream Chaser reusable lifting body space plane, will join SpaceX's Dragon and Northrop Grumman's Cygnus in carrying supplies to the orbiting outpost from United States soil. Northrop Grumman recently acquired Orbital ATK. Dream Chaser began life back in 1957 as the X-20 Dinosaur concept for the US Air Force, a manned space plane to be launched from the top of an Atlas rocket. It later morphed into the 1966 Northrop Grumman M2F2 and Martin X-23 prime lifting bodies. By the 1990s, it had evolved into NASA's HL-20 lifting body and eventually becoming the X-38 space station crew emergency escape pod, a program cancelled in 2002 due to budget cuts. In its latest guise as the Dream Chaser, it's designed to launch on the top of an Atlas V, Ariane V or Falcon Heavy rocket, transporting up to seven crew to and from the space station and then returning to Earth gliding to a conventional runway landing. However, it lost out to Boeing's CST-100 Starliner and SpaceX's Dragon 2 for NASA's space station crew transport contracts. For SpaceX, of course, it was a double win, as they had already been awarded one of the space station's cargo transport contracts using a cargo version of Dragon, the other contract going to orbitals, now Northrop Grumman Cygnus. Meanwhile, taking a leaf out of SpaceX's book, Sierra Nevada began developing a cargo variant of the Dream Chaser, equipped with folding wings to squeeze inside the five-metre payload fairings of conventional launch vehicles. In 2016, NASA awarded Sierra Nevada at least six cargo supply mission flights to the space station for Dream Chaser. Cargo Dream Chaser has also been selected for the United Nations first space mission, allowing countries without access to space to fly microgravity experiments on two-week orbital flights. The Cargo Dream Chaser will carry five tonnes of cargo within the spacecraft, with an additional half-ton in an expendable cargo module fitted aft. The Dream Chaser will also carry up to 1,750 kilograms of completed experiments and equipment on return flights back to the ground both the European Space Agency and StratoLaunch are also studying Dream Chaser as a possible option for future space missions. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has found that omega-3 fatty acids found in fatty fish make little or no difference to your risk of cardiovascular events, coronary heart deaths, coronary heart disease events, stroke or heart irregularities. The findings reported in the Cochrane Library are based on results from 79 randomized trials involving over 112,000 people. There are two main types of omega-3 fatty acids. The first is alpha linolenic acid, or ALA, which is normally found in fats from plant foods such as nuts and seeds, with walnuts and rapeseed being especially rich sources. The other are long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, which are naturally found in fatty fish such as salmon and fish oils, including cod liver oil. Increased consumption of omega-3 fatty acids are widely promoted globally because of a common belief that they will protect against heart disease. There's more than one possible mechanism for how they might help prevent heart disease, including reducing blood pressure or reducing cholesterol. However, the new studies found that long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, those found in fish, had little or no meaningful effect on the risk of death from any cause. The researchers found that the risk of death from any cause was approximately 8.8% in people who had an increased intake of their omega-3 fats, compared to 9% in people in control groups. They also found that taking more long-chain omega-3 fats primarily through supplements probably makes little or no difference to the risk of cardiovascular events, coronary heart disease events, stroke or heart irregularities. Long-chain omega-3 fats probably did reduce some blood fats, triglycerides and HDL cholesterol. Reducing triglycerides is likely to be protective for heart diseases, but reducing HDL or high-density lipoproteins has the opposite effect. Scientists are warning that the collapse of Antarctica's Larsen C and George VI ice shelves could raise sea levels by 26 millimetres. While Larsen C's received plenty of attention following the breakaway of a trillion tonne iceberg from it last year, its collapse would only contribute a few millimetres to sea level rise. However, the breakup of the smaller George VI ice shelf would have a much larger impact, pushing up sea levels by around 22 millimetres. The findings, reported in the journal Cryosphere, suggest that while these numbers are not enormous themselves, when added to ice loss from other glaciers around the world, the impacts could be significant to island nations and coastal populations. A new study claims that consuming beef, jerky and other processed meats could be associated with manic episodes. Manic episodes, or mania, is an abnormal mood state, characterised by hyperactivity, euphoria and insomnia. The findings reported in the journal Molecular Psychiatry are based on an analysis of more than a thousand people both with and without psychiatric disorders. It shows that nitrates, chemicals used to cure meats such as beef jerky, salami, hot dogs and other processed meat snacks may contribute to mania. Specifically, it found that people hospitalized for an episode of mania had more than three times the odds of having ever eaten nitrate cured meats compared to people without a history of a serious psychiatric disorder. Scientists have discovered a new species of snake on Australia's Cape York Peninsula. The problem is, with the ink still drying on the scientific paper, the reptile may already be in danger of extinction due to mining. A new species of venomous Barty Barty snake was discovered near the bauxite mining town of Weeper. One specimen was found on a pile of bauxite, while another was found near Bias Roadkill. The species are described in the journal Zootaxia. Biologists say the discovery of this enigmatic little snake is symptomatic of the much more fundamental problem of how little is known about Australia's biodiversity and how much may be lost before it's even discovered. The earliest bread ever baked has been discovered by archaeologists in northeastern Jordan. The charred remains of the flatbread, baked by hunter-gatherers some 14,400 years ago, were found at a dig known as Sebekwa 1, located in the Jordanian Black Desert. It's the oldest direct evidence of bread ever found, predating the advent of agriculture by at least 4,000 years. The findings, reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, suggest that bread production based on wild cereals may have encouraged hunter-gatherers to cultivate cereals and thus contributed to the agricultural revolution during the Neolithic. The 24 remains analysed in the study show that the wild ancestors of domesticated cereals such as barley, einkorn and oat had been ground, sieved and kneaded prior to cooking. In fact, the remains are very similar to unleavened flatbreads identified at several Neolithic and Roman sites in Europe and Turkey. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from Stuartgary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Space Times also broadcast coast-to-coast coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world